Hello, hello, hello. We're back with um, Bleep uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> at Man at at um, at Mandel Drill on Twitter. Um, social reviewer and friend of the podcast. Um, firstly, hello. Hello. <laughs> um, uh, who has worked in um, campaign strategy for various different um, campaigns, some prominent, um, and uh, like many of us, I think has had um, various detailed thoughts on um, what went wrong with this campaign for Labour, this election campaign. Um, and uh, you did a very good tweet thread about it um, the other day, yesterday. Um, as of time of recording, it's Saturday night. We're going to talk a little bit about that, um, about what went wrong. So, what went wrong? Firstly, oh, I think a, <laughs> I think a lot of things. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think the impression a lot of people were getting were the kind of things that I was putting in my threads, and that was confirmed for me when that um, Guardian article came out about. I think it was called clashing egos and policy incontinence yeah and not necessarily the clashing egos but i think that's a lot more behind the scenes and more difficult to get a sense of that when you're not in Mm. it but in terms of you know policy incontinence and and in general the whole the whole campaign strategy on a national level policy incontinence was the phrase that len mccluskey used in an interview yeah yeah i suspect he was the one doing the briefing for that Guardian article. I, I think so too. Because um, he said, you know, it was a rush of policies which appeared to offer everything to everyone immediately. Yeah. And that's it, That's exactly the impression I got. You know, I say yeah. in my thread, we had a shopping list of mm. one-liners and actually with some of them, while they were brilliant on the face of it, you know, they're thinking along the right lines, but mm. so many of them had such little pos- policy development behind them and yeah. that you saw that, for example, there was a BBC interview with John Ashworth in the middle of the campaign about the four-day week and how it would, would work with the NHS. And it would work, but you have to have the policy development behind it for questioning like that so that you can argue for it properly. And the reality is, is that if the four-day week had sprung up two years ago, you know, at conference 2018... Mm and they had allowed that policy development to flourish um, and had been arguing for it for at least a year, Mm. it would have been a lot easier to sell on the doorstep. And that's another problem is that the manifesto was essentially sprung on the electorate. Mm -hmm. And while some of it was policies that have been around for a bit longer, like the National Education Service, which I'll get onto in a minute, a lot of it was, was... seen as very new things Mm -hmm. like the green new deal which you know everyone knows about if you're in a left-wing bubble but Mm -hmm. the wider electorate doesn't necessarily know what that is and the kind of job creation it would bring um and that has to be communicated and argued for years you know you want Mm. the electorate to effectively know what the labor party manifesto looks like in the years running up to a campaign yeah rather than in the campaign and and on policies like the national education service i'm pretty sure the party were doing a members consultation on it in july i see i seem Mm. to remember getting an email about it and um or something to that end because the point was there was no comprehensive policy on what a national education service would look like what Mm -hmm. they had was a shopping list of policies on childcare, sure start, um, getting rid of university tuition fees, increasing school funding, free school meals, all wonderful policies. But the phrase National Education Service was clearly something that someone had come up with that they thought sounded very good, um, but hadn't had the policy development underneath it to back it up because it suggests something new. It suggests the creation of something new when really what was being offered was, you know, a abolishing of different things and the creation of things like sure start centres and the reopening of those. Um, yeah. And and that was a that was a massive problem was the lack of policy development. And I think the next leadership 
you know, the, in the leadership election, the candidates need to, you know, whoever wants to win needs to say to the membership, I'm going to, I'm going to implement steps that are going to allow grassroots policy development to flourish under my leadership. Because yeah. actually, under this current leadership, um, there's been an absolute, the impression I get is an absolute stranglehold on grassroots policy development. And I think it all, all goes back to the reluctance to relinquish control over policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I know people in the national policy forums and things who have said there's no, you know, they found that there's no point being in them because they aren't listened to. They yeah. don't get anything. They feel like most of the stuff they do is is meaningless, effectively, mm. in terms mm. of what is going to translate into party policy in the manifesto. And um, it's a strange one because, for, so for the four-day week, for example, that policy, that policy has been argued for, but not by the Labour leadership because, like, um, as you as you say, the, these policies don't just kind of like come from, come from thin air. They're they're worked with by like think tanks so like think tanks like commonwealth who we've had on this podcast um will have been speaking about stuff like a four-day week and it hasn't been a totally hasn't been a totally new thing but it's it's been totally new to labor party policy since like september so i i I find it very strange that um the leadership were adopting these things formally so late basically uh and i find it very strange that they were not communicated better and they were not communicated in the terms that they have always been communicated in somebody was tweeting um uh to to talk about this with joe earlier on twitter and like corbyn was laughed at in one of the debates about the four-day week and all he needed to do was say like well yeah it sounds a bit silly but so did the five-day week at one point and Mm. It you know it, I feel, I feel like I feel like there needed to be it needed to be more of that of trying to make trying to make these radical policies sound common sense and also finding that kind of overarching narrative that you've spoken about. Absolutely, and and that's another thing is like you say think tanks and and things like that are and and authors who've written books you know all about how how we implement a modern form of socialism have been arguing for things like the four day week for a long time you look at something like the national national minimum wage you know that wasn't just sprung on the electorate um in an election Mm. that was worked on for years there was opposition to it it came from the left of the party but there was opposition to it within the trade union movement it was worked on and deliberated over and developed for years and years and years by the likes of people like Rodney Bickerstaff before it was worked on within the Labour Party again for a very long time, developed to the point where the leadership endorsed it and started arguing for it mm. um, in, a, in a clear and concise way um, and it became manifesto policy. But again, the electorate knew what it was before it was sprung on them in that manifesto. Um, mm. And and that's another th- problem that you have is is the completely messy messaging on these things. And it, mm. and it comes from, in my opinion, it comes from the kind of, I don't even know how to describe it, this kind of over-intellectualism. You know, I don't want to put it too crudely, but, you know, we're all going to you know sit around and feel good about ourselves because we read a few essays today about whatever <laughs> um y- you know really that's an, no that's an one... attack on me <laughs> well no, no 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 it's not because you are you are accompanied by people who who you work on together these ideas and how those translate into how you argue them publicly to people who don't understand those ideas and it's nothing to do with i see all this oh you're patronizing the working class no the the majority of people in this country don't know what the four-day week is because they aren't like us they aren't in this bubble of Mm. of left-wing wonkish policy nerds you know there's nothing yeah. patronising about saying that we need to have clear, concise messaging that accompanies every single policy, particularly the ones that are a bit more modern 
a little bit more radical you know we have to be able to break these things down and communicate them and one of the first things i would say is don't call it a four-day week you know call it a 32-hour week you know because i people like me who don't work a regular monday to friday nine to five job which actually if you want to be in touch with the working class the majority of modern day working class jobs are things like shift work people paid hourly i'm paid hourly so when i when people like me here four day week we think what what do you mean yeah (laughs) yeah these are people who are working 50 maybe even 60 hour week sometimes or maybe they're not maybe they are part-time workers you know working you know however many hours a week and they hear four day week and think you know that doesn't translate immediately into the kind of work they're doing you know it's not a clear image for them i totally agree with you and you know and and that is a thing if you are paid hourly you know you don't you don't necessarily either have a five-day week even Um, that's been yeah that's been my long-standing concern with the policy because i remember when i was a shift worker for for a long time and i would actually i remember actually trying to explain the four-day week policy to some of my co-workers and they would all just go oh that's great but i'm working six days a week anyway or like well there's no way a four day week could work in a business like this i worked in a hotel um so it was like basically functioning 24 7 and when you're in that kind of context you hear something like four day week and you think well that's not happening because i don't even work a five day week it's what we're supposed to be so yeah i hadn't thought about in the context of hours before but yes I I, i would totally agree with you and also there's the kind of work which is contract work I think about people I know who work in industries like construction who may Mm. take on a job that takes several weeks, you know, where they work maybe six or seven days a week Mm. um, for (laughs) a month or two. um, And then they have a month off Mm. and then they have their next contract. And it's and it's on and off like that throughout the year. And Mm. you have to think about how is the four-day week going to work for people who are who are basically on on contract work yeah, or yeah. self-employed um you know because again the four-day week doesn't make sense to what what actually how people organize their work in the, in the modern world which is actually not necessarily the monday to friday five-day week the nine to five the office job it's a very commuter way of presenting that policy to be honest mm. but do, do you think do you think one of the reasons why it was presented and argued for in that way by the labor leadership was because they still have that reluctance to the modern way of working in wanting to i don't actually know if banning zero hours contracts was in this manifesto but it was definitely in the 2017 manifesto well the banning of zero hours hour contracts is makes sense you know and because you already have flexible work contracts you can have annualized hours contracts you know mm. and, and zero hours contracts is a particular way of of employing people on that kind of work which places the power with the employer and the pressure on the employee mm. um so i think they had it right there but they need to really look at you know i know it's might be difficult for them as people who do work monday to friday nine to five office jobs Mm. um but majority people in this there's a huge swathe of people in this country who just don't have that and and yeah the shopping list stuff um the manifesto one-liners the lack of policy development and particularly the lack of messaging to accompany it comes from actually really being out of touch with with the working class and with and with people's mm. normal lives um and i i think as well the other huge issue which was highlighted in the guardian article was the total lack of of ground strategy the seats you know the article mm. said there was a list of 150 target seats you know they hadn't they hadn't worked out where their defensive canvases were going to be where they were going to shore up Mm -hmm. support in their own labor held marginals um they were 
indulging vanity projects like uh, Uxbridge. I was getting emails telling yeah. me to go to Uxbridge instead of places like Watford, Chipping Barnet, Kensington, um, which yeah. were very, very tight marginals, those three places. Very tight marginals. And you had Uxbridge, mm. which was effectively a, a, effectively a safe seat, a Tory safe seat. And the, and the desire for the glory of, of taking Uxbridge, of unseating the Prime Minister, completely clouded reasonable judgment. And so you sure. had resources and attention, and that includes sending key key campaigners, key Twitter campaigners like Owen Jones and people like that down to support Ali Milani, uh, which may have made us all feel very good about ourselves, uh, but actually meant meant very little in terms of you know a proper ground strategy um and i had i heard all the time from from friends of mine across the country who weren't didn't understand why they were being sent to strongholds rather than the loosely held you know defensive marginals or or the winnable marginals they would have seen for example the internal polling because they all run their own internal polling in election times Mm -hmm. they would have seen the internal polling of finchley gold as green and they would have seen that what had previously been a tight conservative labor marginal they would have seen that labor were nowhere near that finchley gold as green was lost to a a tory lib dem marginal this time because of luciana berger standing in the seat and they would have mm-hmm. they would have seen from the internal polling there was a waste of time, and yet they still sent people there. Um, and we ended up with a Tory MP splitting with a split exactly, vote. exactly. And, same in, and same in Kensington. Well, exactly, and and you know, I also have strong feelings about the Lib Dems who didn't stand aside in places like Kensington. Um, you know, yeah. if this, you have to ask yourself. I think Lib Dem members have to ask themselves, particularly the ones who have joined as Remainers, rather than as necessarily traditional Liberal Democrats. If this was all about stopping Brexit and stopping Boris, you know, why why were you running in a seat like Kensington, other than yeah, it being a van- sure. vanity project in in places like that? Um, and you saw that whole I think, mess I think with Vanity Canterbury. Played a role. Absolutely, and but the thing is, it played a role in Labour's campaign as well. And you saw that in Uxbridge. Yeah. Um, you know, it was completely. I do you know what epitomises the whole of the Labour campaign for me? And it's not just just the general election campaign. It's also the campaign operation they've been running for the last year or so. You know, they've been in general mm-hmm. election campaign mode for a long time. Um, yeah. Is they don't they don't really have people. I think they don't really have people who know what they're doing. I really don't think they know fully what they're doing. I think you've got. I know a few of the top names, obviously, the notorious names, are very used to campaign strategy for various splinter groups, basically tiny little campaign mm. groups who are a smidgen on the political map of the UK. And they've now, and this doesn't go for all, all the staffers, obviously, just a, a, a few key people. And now they're in charge of running a very complex national campaign for the second biggest political party in the United Kingdom. And they're just too amateurish to pull it off. And you've mm. seen that with with... And that's very evident in things like the lack of strategic resource designation uh, in terms of seats. And it's also, you see it in terms of the slogans, you know. I, yeah, it's time for real change. It's time for that? real change. I was absolutely <laughs> head in hands over that. You want your slogan to read like a headline. You want it to read like a headline. And no newspaper editor will ever have it. No good newspaper editor, anyway, would ever have it at the start mm. of a 
of a slogan like that. The slogan well, itself, the yeah. real change, you know, is too vague. It doesn't conjure up a, a proper a proper image the way that for example get brexit done does oh okay this is the party of decisive action this is the party of getting brexit over the line that's that's the impression people get from that whether it's a, you know the fact it's a substanceless uh irritating phrase to people like us that message cut through um, mm. And that's another thing. They had impeccable message discipline in the Tory party. And even though we were all going, oh, my God, every question, he brings it back to Brexit, even if it's about, you know, bananas, he brings it back to Brexit. <laughs> and that was irritating. But it works. It works, exactly. And, you know, it's it's time for real change. You know, if you are going to go for real change, why have it's time for real change just have labor yeah. for real well, change yeah you in not in an yeah. ideal world you want a call to action you know such cliche new labor new britain well well <laughs> it's such a it's such a cliche to say call to action and you want a yeah. you want a vision but for example new labor new britain you know that conjures up a vision wow you well, know it's a brand yeah. new labor party we're gonna they think okay these people are gonna renew the country yeah well, well, this this taps in with what I'm really still quite confused about, and and maybe maybe you don't have the answer, maybe we still don't know the answer to this. But why why were these things not true in 2017 when Labour did make gains and Labour did have a successful campaign? What changed between 2017 and 2019 to make the campaign suddenly so amateurish? And like, what was wrong with for the for the many, not the few, as a slogan? Why not just keep that? I mean. I have my issues with for the many, not the few as well. Um, mm. I mean, it's a catchy slogan, there's no denying, but particularly at a time when the country needs togetherness, you know. Sure. It's another, what that slogan is, for the many, not the few, is another in-joke. It's another, we're all, we're all left-wing policy wonks who understand that the few are you know the capitalists uh the mm. very rich conservative party donors shoring up their hedge funds and whatever else right that is mm. another it's another in joke right i know it's not a joke but i don't know how else to describe it it's another only the members or yeah, the people I know, in I know the what bubble you mean. Yeah. understand exactly what it's referring to whereas you know, if you say it to people who aren't in that bubble, who don't have a concept of, you know, the kind of fundamentals of, of socialism, of academic socialism, they mm. hear, okay, for some but not others, you know. And really mm. what you want is is something that's, you know, for everyone, gives the impression of for everyone. Even if the idea mm. behind the slogan is... is is right and is a is a socialist one you know it's and that's epitomizes the whole problem that labor's been having is everything is a play to the members and not a play to mm. the electorate in this campaign for example the you go on the website and look at the national education service policy it goes this is a radical policy but it's much needed you know and it's all a play to the member it's not a radical policy because it's not a policy it's a phrase it's a catchphrase yeah. and you look at the policies and it's it's literally things like sure start and abolishing tuition fees and things like that and that that is not radical that is very very good policy much needed but presenting it as radical is designed to energize the members which works at some times, but it doesn't work in a general election campaign when you're telling the electorate just how bloody radical you are. Um, you know, and for people like us, it's like, yeah, we're so transformative and it's exciting. But what a lot of voters hear and what I kept hearing is it's just a bit too much. They're just a bit too... Mm. They just strike me as a bit too much, a bit too left-wing, Um you know, I'm not sure they're really what what we need because they hear mm. words that they've been taught to to frighten them essentially. Um, mm. You know, but it do, it doesn't help the lack of self awareness yeah. on our side. 
well, so, so again, that 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 taps in with my 2017 versus 2019. Oh yeah, sorry. Because <laughs> went off because the <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's for, for, well, it, it, the manifesto was clearly thicker this time around than in 2017, and I I just don't really understand why the 2017 campaign wasn't broadly stuck to and adhered to this time around. I don't really understand why the campaign chiefs didn't look to 2017 as like mm. the ultimate holy grail and obviously it's not really the holy grail because they didn't win but the holy grail in terms of like what labor could achieve under socialism because until this election it was proof it was proof that uh, a socialist labor party could make gains and could get close to government yeah. and it disproved all the people wrong who have now been proved right by this election um and i just don't really understand how 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 the campaign strategists and how the leadership got from there to where they are now from got to a place where voters did trust the party and did think mm-hmm. actually i trust that they will invest in public services and got to a place where as, as we've been saying where, they, where they're laughing and thinking no i i where they're thinking i trust boris johnson more than jeremy corbyn on the nhs which is absolutely mental mm-hmm. um like do, do you think it was hubris do you think it was an era of inevitability that oh it's just one more one more heave and then we'll do it i think what changed was where the leadership was in 2017 you know not just the leadership actually where the party was in 2017 versus where it was in 2019 and the the policies um where the 2019 manifesto was much bigger than 2017 what the polling shows is that people were concerned about the leadership and concerned about spending and yes also partially concerned about brexit concerned about brexit but not to the extent that the spinners are arguing and i think mm. what you have is in 2017 the anti-semitism issue was only just really bubbling up um into the mainstream media at that point you obviously had the ken livingston stuff but the institutional systemic uh, element of it was not in and out of the news every single day, right? Um, Mm. Whereas what you've had since then, particularly, you know, that awful summer in 2018, uh, the deliberation over the definition of anti-Semitism, Chris Williamson, you know, people like that. And what, what voters see is they and they see this with brexit as well they don't necessarily understand the detail that doesn't necessarily cut through they don't necessarily care that much about the substance but what they see is a leadership which has a serious or complex issue and fails to deal with it right Mm -hmm. and that that is what loses trust and that is what where i think the trust went between 2017 and 2019 is people see you know labor's position on brexit jeremy corbyn saying he's going to be neutral in a future referendum and people don't get a feeling of trust from that response they think what this is a guy who you know everyone tells us how principled he has been his whole life and yet on this one issue he's saying he will be neutral people are distrustful of that and i think rightly so and similarly with anti-semitism people don't know you know the wider electorate don't necessarily care that much really about institutional anti-semitism but what they see is a symbolic issue which the leadership and the party has failed completely and utterly failed to deal with which you know, Len McCluskey called it mood mood music, which was, you know, pretty distasteful in my opinion. And but, you know, to a certain extent, what what I th- what my interpretation of that is is that yes, it set mood music throughout the campaign because they had not dealt with it. The mood music was that there was an institutional anti-Semitism issue whether that be the EHRC report or whistleblowers coming forward again and again, you know, 
seemingly in every single Sunday Times edition. Um, and that was the anchor, really, that was dragging the party down. On days where, you know, it, I sometimes wonder whether they even had a grid, and the one that was leaked, apparently leaked mm. at the start of the campaign, was crap. But it meant that actually what they had wanted to talk, speak about on the grid that day was completely marred by questions of the story of anti-Semitism that had come out that day because it's always something new. Because there is always going to be something new when when you are doing something on an institutional well, yeah. level like that. Uh, and and in short, yeah, I think that's the trust went and it went on Brexit, it went on anti-Semitism. People didn't understand the detail, but they saw the symbolism of a leadership which was dithering and that gave the impression of a weak Labour Party. And mm. I, I, Whereas in 2017, you know, people had their issues with Jeremy Corbyn, but there wasn't that those, those level. Those things weren't ingrained. No, there was not that level of distrust, not at all. I think I think from 2015 to 2017, the party effectively had two years, or just under two years, to cement the anti-austerity message and move the Overton window that way. And Brexit had only occurred a year prior it was not yet ingrained in the public consciousness that Labour was a ditherer over Brexit. I mean, I mean, the the early signs were there and the early criticisms were there, but it, certainly not to the extent that it is now. And ditto for anti-Semitism. But instead of spending 2017 to 2019 making the further case for being anti-austerity, not just being anti-austerity, but saying we have a vision for something better, uh, it was, your, as you say, dithering over Brexit and dithering over anti-Semitism and instead of instead of voters understanding in greater detail what the party wanted to do it was understanding in greater detail the extent to what the party wasn't doing yeah and actually that's that raises another thing is that the party has done such a fantastic job and that that's been one of the campaign messages that has really taken off because they've been arguing for it for 4 years the anti-austerity message um and they've you know like you say they've shifted the overton window um they had the tories you know publicly saying it was the end of austerity even if it wasn't yeah they had to change their messaging on it but i think yeah. what what labor missed at this election was that there are still public worries about spending and while people may go yes of course we are anti-austerity there is still an element of but we don't want to spend too much and I think the that's another issue of the difference between 2019 and 2017 is that because we had a bigger manifesto more policies we had more spending commitments and mm. what we should have done is done a much clearer prioritization of what what spending commitments were more important than others because even if they're even if they're still on on the you know list to do you know what you want to put in the manifesto is the most urgent things and i personally your first term stuff yeah you you know first 100 days stuff is you know pumping in the money you need to end homelessness and and hunger and starvation you know, that's the kind of thing you want to be doing. It's rescuing public services like the NHS, like the fire and rescue service and like education that you want to be doing within the first 100 days. You know, stuff like, you know, money to re-nationalise water is not a hun first 100 days job, right? It can, it can be done in a, in a five-year term but it's not the priority. And and that's just one example of of some of the policies that I wouldn't have prioritised in terms of spending quite so much because otherwise what you get is an impression of, you know, the voters think, wow, they, they have so many good policies, but God, that that's going to take a lot of money, you know, and, and it's difficult to get past those, uh, yeah. those mindsets. And and the, the the spending justifications didn't actually change between this time and last time, but the spending commitments did, is the problem. Yeah. Like I think it was very easy to buy that, 
the 2017 commitments of um, abolishing tuition fees um, and basic nationalizations of water, um, water, rail and so forth um, could be paid for by a tax on the top 5% of earners. But when you're throwing in absolutely everything else, it becomes mm. much harder to buy. And I know several people were saying this throughout the campaign um, that that's not happening. That is that's it's just not going to work. Absolutely. And and some of those policies fell apart after five minutes of questioning from journalists because of, you know, how it could possibly be implemented. Um, and, the, and an element of that was the, the sheer amount of spending commitment. It wasn't that it couldn't be done. Um, it was the overall vibe that it gave to voters was you're trying to do, you're telling us that you're trying to do too much. It doesn't mean you actually say we're not going to do those things. You just don't necessarily put them at the forefront of the manifesto or the forefront mm-hmm. of, the, of the grid. Um, so, yeah, there's that as well. And then there's also... Um, Oh, it's just gone from my brain. Something else just came up in my brain. Oh, yeah. Um, Nationalisation, right? I'm ideologically on board with that and and always have been, particularly in terms of of things like transport. Um, But the word nationalisation, again, you know, for a lot lot of older people um, who were maybe around when things like that were nationalised before they were privatised may know what those things are some of them may not but it it seems to me to be another kind of in word of of something you know what it means if you're in the left-wing bubble and that you're less yeah. likely to know what it means if you're not and another thing is that if you are one of those people who is outside of that bubble you hear nationalisation and you hear top-down approach Whitehall dictating the trains and actually what Labour needs to move towards is perhaps, you know, stuff like nationalising water. Water was never nas- nationally run. It was obviously publicly owned, but they were localised, regionalised services, as were a lot of these services that we now want to nationalise. And so if we can talk about localising them and regionalising them, we give the impression to voters that we're saying your town, your region, we're putting you in control. And and a lot of the Brexit sentiment and the sentiment behind this general election was the f- people feeling that they had a lack of control over their own lives and their own communities and their own towns and areas they live in. So if you can change that nationalisation messaging, just tweak it slightly to say, you know, we're going to regionalise it, we're going to localise it. You know, if you can throw in a few cooperative type values in your implementation of it as well when you're doing the policy development of it on it, even better because you are literally democratizing those services as well. And you are mm. literally putting giving people some control over those things. And you look at things like trains and buses, these are things which have to be localised and regionalised. You can't possibly run them from a top-down approach. You know, they have to be based on what the lo- what that local, the intricacies and the insider knowledge of those local areas. Um, you know, you have it with London already. You have transport for London. You have integrated buses and trains and light rail and underground all over London and it's all condensed into an Oyster card or a travel card and you're ready to go and you can replicate so a potential new policy is that but replicating that across different regions that is exactly what I think they should be arguing when they say renationalisation of the trains I think they should be saying you know look London already enjoys this fantastic way of running public transport where they are all integrated you don't have to pay a separate fee you know you can hop on one and hop off the other all day or week or month or year depending on what type of card you have um you know and they should aim to replicate that you know a publicly owned company or whatever uh running that uh ideally on some kind of cooperative model where the local people do have a genuine democratic say in the running of those services sure. um, and and i think that's how it should be argued 
because I think that connects a lot more to what people have been talking about, these endless platitudes about towns versus cities and we need to speak to people in towns. It's like, okay, what does that really mean? What does that really look like? It should look like shifting the messaging, shifting the policy to be locally localised and regionalised services. And I think that goes for most most public services as well. And even things like finance, you know, even things like uh, the welfare system, um, housing, you know, we already have it with, with council housing, you know, we want to expand what we've already got mm. and, and completely mm. localise it and put people in control. Definitely. And and it seems like we're kind of on this topic already, but just, just, just quickly, I, I, want, I want to get your sense of what, in the, immediate, in the immediate term, the party needs to do, what I mean, the theme of this week is what next, what now, what what are the next steps? So what do you think the immediate priorities for the next Labour leadership need to be? Improving their messaging seems to be one. Absolutely. I'd say getting people who know what they're doing. Um, don't employ your mates, your sons, your daughters, whatever. Employ the people who will, who have the experience and know how to do the job well and employ the young people who are in touch you know and actually a diverse group of people who are in touch with different backgrounds you know who will look at things like the four day week and think that wouldn't have worked in the job that I was last in you know that kind of messaging um I'd say obviously the next leader needs to completely crack down on anti-semitism and actually, 100%. and actually, yeah, that's a wider issue. I think in terms of the toxicity of some of the internal party culture right now, I don't think it will just be anti-Semitism. Um, I think that's a massive part of it, but I think there's a lot of other things that need to be done in terms of bullying, um, in terms of sexual harassment, um, in terms of the kind of sites like. You know, I don't want to mention them, but, you know, these horrible blogging sites, some of which have been set up that that senior Labour politicians for the last few years have been promoting. You know, we need to cut that loose. Um, we benefit, we do not benefit as a party whatsoever from boosting people like that um, and boosting, you know, anti-Semitic conspiracy theorists. Um and generally, you know, fostering a culture within the party that people get from the top and which trickles down to the membership of a, a, a calmer and a, and a more cohesive party culture. Um, I'd also say just one thing which has been really annoying me about, you know, people putting themselves forward as candidates and... Some of the messaging, you know, that I've been hearing seems to be you can't elect so-and-so because they're not Northern or we need to elect a leader who is from a seat in the Midlands or the North. Mm. And I just listen to that and I think, no, that's pure tokenism. You don't need an accent to connect to people in towns and cities that have that accent. You need someone with mm. the policy platform, <laughs> with the manifesto, with the party that already connects to it on a on a policy and a messaging level. It's not about the voices. And you know, I've I've also heard it in particular in regards to Dawn Butler and David Lammy that they can't connect to, you know, the traditional working class in the North. I think we all know what what that... My dog is whistling. Well, I can hear the whistle well, coming yes. from my dog. <laughs> and I tweeted, yeah. you know, I haven't endorsed anyone yet. I don't know who I'll be supporting. I know, certainly know who I won't be supporting, let's put it that way. Uh, but I did tweet <laughs> about Dawn Butler and her deputy leadership bid. And I had several people respond to me saying, but she's a London metropolitan whatever she's you mm. can't elect uh, a deputy leader or leader who's 
in a metropolitan seat. And I just think, have you been to Brent? Like, this <laughs> is not, you know, some hippy-dippy middle-class, you know, paradise island. This is, you know, there are parts of London and, and, and cities all over the UK that are some of the most deprived in Europe. And yeah. actually... MPs, not just like Dawn, but MPs who are in seats like that, that have some of some of the worst deprivation, will actually have experience with, you know, speaking to dealing with their constituents' problems that actually will help them to connect much better to the people in similarly deprived areas in the north and in the midlands mps who represent these kind of deprived areas would have a lot in common with you know these people who feel like they're on a forgotten estate that they're forgotten people a forgotten town and who feel like they don't count um and my i think my biggest takeaway from this election and what the leadership needs to think about the next leadership needs to think about is that ultimately you have to make it as easy as possible for people to vote for Labour, to trust Labour, to make the decision to back Labour. You know, the 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 absence of that is what drove lifelong Labour voters to feel like they were holding their noses or, or to simply vote for another party. It's that we didn't make it as easy as possible for them to trust us and to vote for us and and that's really what you have to do no amount of you know wonderful ideological purity is going to fix that problem if you just don't have the trust um but i would also say to any person running for a leadership deputy leadership candidate if they're listening, which hopefully they are. Well, you know, if if you're listening, give me a call. Um, dying to work <laughs> on a campaign. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I've had enough watching, you know, clowns driving a clown car. Um, <laughs> but I would say don't get marred and bogged down by the general election spin, right? The devastation of this result. Because who you are going to be playing to is the members actually it isn't about the wider electorate in this sure you have to bear that in mind and all the members are going to be thinking about the lessons we've learned but you know ultimately you're you're playing to a membership base you know so earlier when i said you know don't don't present yourself as too radical when actually you're not um that's precisely what you're going to be want to be doing in this election campaign is you know Mm. i you know indulge the left off the radical off a bit um to win over the to win over the members essentially but i think they're they're all simultaneously need to be an awareness that the country will be watching that leadership election absolutely and in the process of watching that leadership election they're going to be making their decisions and their first impressions of of those leaders and you know i I, yeah I i don't necessarily think that we need to be have some kind of return to 1997 centrism blah blah blah, blairism etc etc i i actually i don't think anyone's really arguing for that i think we're all just afraid that someone is um but i i think that it's good i I think there will need to be a a straddling of the line between radicalism and and making radicalism not sound radical making radicalism sound like common sense absolutely and you're right the the electorate will be looking at it and it is that balance between presenting yourself as you know the stoic i can steer the labor party through these choppy waters i'm going to make johnson look like a toddler having a tantrum you know i'm going to be the <laughs> strong and stable candidate um <laughs> But also, you know, they are going to have to indulge a little bit into the ideological side of things and and trying to present yourself as probably more left-wing than you really are, which is really what this party's been doing for the last few years anyway. Um, But actually having the ambitious, radical, transformative policy platform that actually is a lot more ambitious than our manifesto uh, 
this year and in 2017, you know, ceased to be, um, while also saying, and actually we're going to prioritise the things that need prioritising, we're not going to throw a whole ton of things at the country and make you feel like, you know, give you the impression we might be spending too much, you know, being the sensible candidate, but also, you know, playing to that, what the membership want a bit. Hi, it's Joe here. The election was a catastrophe and for all the talk about the next leader and how we win another election, five years is too long to wait before we can do something about it. Our website will have various pieces up agreeing and disagreeing about those next steps. I'm sure this podcast contains wildly different ideas about the road ahead. But this election wasn't lost just because of Corbyn or Brexit, although they are both clearly key factors. But both of them accentuated a rot that had already set in the party going back to deindustrialisation. If there is a route back for Labour, it has to be about reconnecting and reorganising within collective spaces. The term community organising is one that always crops up when a centre-left party is defeated, and it's easier to say than to do. So what I think ought to happen now is not for Labour members to expect us to build up a vast community organising network overnight. That's difficult, intensive work that ought to start now, and we all have a responsibility to aid in this. But equally, there are community initiatives that exist now and desperately need your help, particularly now that we know we have at least four or five years of Conservative government. These should be the basis of our efforts. They have the experience and the expertise and the existing infrastructure. So we've set up a page on our website with links to different groups and organisations that you could support. Please keep sending them in. Renters, unions, food banks, homeless shelters, support for refugees, legal advice or support, community gardens, etc, etc. These are all necessary. If you've still got canvassing WhatsApp groups from the election campaign, why not see if you can get a group together to go along with them too? Let's get our membership fully embedded in community initiatives and begin the long road back to power. Look after each other. <laughs>